don't fuck it up, people. You know, do it right. You're only as good as your last beer. Today, I'm sitting in Fremont Brewery's shiny new conference room in their Ballard production facility. Today's guest is Sarah Nelson, local beer MVP and co-founder of Fremont Brewery. She champions environmental friendliness, high-quality beer, and brewery independence. If you haven't heard of Fremont Brewery, then you must not live in Seattle. It is the third largest craft brewery in Washington and one of Seattle's rising stars. And it is a great pleasure of mine to sit down with Sarah Nelson today. I'm the Cycling Certified Cicerone, and this is Washington Beer Talk. Take it away, Sarah. are like a really special brewery in Washington like you're one of the biggest like top three I don't know if you have any of the numbers on that or know anything about that but I'd like to talk about that a lot you're also special in that you are a full-scale production brewery you know as one of the biggest ones most of the breweries I talk to are basically you know they're taproom only breweries uh, the really small kind of stuff and you guys I you know imagine started like that I, I don't even know when it was that you were founded but it wasn't could it, you know wasn't all that long ago and uh, um, but now you're this so I think you'll have some interesting insights on like sort of the state of uh, maybe the industry in Washington you know what it's like to sort of become a big production brewery how other breweries could fall in your footsteps if that's even possible um, you know maybe where you guys are heading after this I know this is a recent a, fa- a fairly recent development uh, so it'd be fun to talk about what this move was, the move from Fremont over to the Ballard area for what this production facility was like. And I kind of like would, I'd like to get your thoughts on, you know, you, you know, talking origin story, you know, what it was like over in Fremont, the difference over here. Uh, and we'll just sort of chat and see where it goes. And if we don't hit any of those subjects, it doesn't matter if we hit them all and have one come up with some more. I like to get people railing on Budweiser and you might be great at that. Uh, now you're in Lagunitas, Heineken territory. So maybe you want to complain about them a little bit. You know, it's always good to get you ranting. Well, I am wearing an independent button, so exactly. I am very much perfect. Let me give you some background, and then you can maybe figure it out. Yeah. I'm on the uh, so what I my work here is external relations, so I do government relations. So I'm on the government affairs committee of the uh, Washington Guild, and also the Brewers Association. So um, I do. Uh, state and federal regulation and tax stuff. Um, and a lot of that has to do with, and I was a kind of one of the poster children for the independent launch, you know, the independent campaign launch. So that's really important to me. I do, I work a lot about that. And I also do our whole, um, sustainability program, which is, uh, a real core value, um, you know, in, of the company and kind of baked into its DNA because of Matt's and my background and stuff like that. So um, I can talk a little bit of that and also, you know, starting up in the middle of a recession, et cetera. Let's start with the, uh, with, with an introduction. So who am I chatting with today? My name is Sarah Nelson. All right, Sarah, I saw online that, didn't you do a recent like city council run or something? Yes, last year I ran for citywide council seat. I didn't really mean to do that. <laughs> I was recruited very late because uh, um, Tim Burgess was stepping down, and there wasn't a council member. Um, there wasn't a candidate that could that folks thought could really speak to a lot of the issues of the city. So I, uh, I declared on 420. <laughs> that was kind of on purpose, um, and so got into the got into the race very late. Came in. Third, getting the bronze in the primary is really not all that great, so I did not proceed to the general. But I didn't 
have any real thought that I would win. What I wanted to do was to change the conversation in the city. Um, number one, business is not bad. We actually create jobs. And uh, the sort of the divisiveness between the city and the private sector is something that has to be stopped. I was campaigning on a platform of just common sense, back to basics, get stuff done. Cool. Um, this is not going to be about that. We're not going to talk about that anymore. But I did just want to. Oh, I, but I, I love noticed, policy. I had to talk about it a little <laughs> bit. Um, well, we actually, then that, that'll be that's a great segue into before we talk about Fremont Brewery at all, where we're sitting. Uh, let's talk about. Um, you were already starting to talk about the, uh, you know, the independent brewery movement. You you said you were in a brewers association. Pretty important there. Uh, let's talk about some of that. Let's talk about let's let's I guess start with the industry and talk about that kind of policy and what's kind of going. Well, first, I have to kind of talk about, you know, my background and why. Uh, oh, right. Know, so let me <laughs> open oh, a beer. There we go. Yeah. So um, my background was in uh, a lot of sort of, um, well, in public policy, because I worked for a city council member for 11 years. And before that, I was always involved in sort of national or local politics. Same with Matt. And so we kind of came to, uh, well, we came to each other um, and started the brewery with shared passions in the past. In fact, we met at WTO in 1999. Yeah, I have a cute little picture of that. And so um, a lot of those values were kind of fused into our into our business. So when I talk about my work with the BA or any other thing or why I ran, it's all basically because that's kind of a common thread throughout my grown-up life. So when we started the brewery, um, we decided that we wanted to do not just make great beer, but do right by our community and do right by our employees. So, do you want to know anything else about the beginning of the brewery or anything? Well, yeah, let's go ahead and start with that. Let's bring it. Let's bring it back over to the to the origin. So, I bet you have the I bet you have the whole spiel lined up. You want to get it? Not really. Over? Okay. Um, basically, Matt was a home brewer. Uh, when I met him and uh, he decided he wanted to go to law school to uh, go into environmental law because he was an environmentalist and wanted to change the world, etc. Well, that didn't turn out so well. He was funneled into hospitality law because he's a home brewer and that was in like 2000, eh, 2004 or five or so. And so he got on a first name basis with a lot of the liquor control board staffers helping businesses like wineries and breweries and restaurants, um, you know, negotiate contracts. And he just thought, wait a minute, I'm doing this for these people and why can't I have my own? And so then when he decided he wanted to bail on law altogether to have a microbrewery, which is what we called them back then, way back in the in the old times of, you know, 2008, um, <laughs> I thought that was not a very smart idea. We had two kids, three and two at the time. But, you know, it was his passion and so we went for it. And, um, and I brought uh, my background in city politics and environmental policy to the table. I, quit my job for a couple of years to help the business start up and voila. Um, but it sounds a long time ago now, but I still feel the, uh, the anxiety of having written our check for the down payment of um, Red Lodge Brewing's um, old brew house. So we went out to Montana to test out the brew house because they were expanding. And when we were coming back with the whole family back to Seattle, spent the night in Missoula, turned on the news and Lehman Brothers just failed. So that threw things into a little bit of chaos. So, um, you know, we made it work. Some investors fled, others, you know, came to us with open arms. We didn't get the loans we wanted for the uh, some of the equipment, notably the canning line, until two or three years later. But it worked out. 
And so here we are. And yes, you asked, uh, you know, what our size is. I still think of us as, as small and new, but we are, I, I believe, the third largest independent uh, craft brewery. In, of course. Uh, yeah, you don't count Washington. the Legion. You don't get to count Lagunitas. No, 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 they, no, no. bre- they barely even brew any beer over there. Right, no. It's, so it's not Widmer. It's not um, uh, Red Hook. Uh, yeah, Red Hook. Yeah. Um, it's, so I think it's Georgetown, Mac, and Jackson S. Yeah. That is... Yeah, that's just it's really, crazy. really cool. Yeah, it's great. It's great to be sitting here. Actually, I'm really pleased. We're sitting in the conference room. I've got a great view of the whole of all the stainless steel, the tops of these tall tanks. It's a, uh, it's really nice. Um, so I guess it's fair to say that you guys had a pretty solid um, among the backgrounds that brewers have when they open their breweries. You guys have a pretty good deck. You know, some good right. cards there. Yeah. Uh, most brewers who want to start their own breweries, they kind of they don't have the law experience, not, not right. much less the liquor control first name basis, um, and they don't have the city council kind of the actual real leaders. Yeah, all that stuff. They don't have mm-hmm. any of that. Um, they have basically the, well, I'm a home brewer and I want to start a brewery. And then they hire somebody like Matt. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So you guys had a, a really good setup from the beginning. You talked about buying a used brew house from that uh, brewery over in Missoula. And it's actually in Red Lodge. Red Lodge. Yeah, outside uh, of Billings. And that is, that's funny to me because breweries opening today don't get to buy used brew houses because they just don't really... They're not around. All the all, huh. because there's so many breweries opening that if you want to be one of the lucky ones that gets to buy a used one, you got basically you're waiting for one of these guys to go out of business or someone else to upsize. Which breweries open much faster than they go out of right. business and much 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 faster than up they upsize. Yeah. So there really is not much. So what was that first brew house? I like? you know that's funny. I have not been cruising the um, equipment for sale listers. But, oh yeah. Uh, well, it was so we found a place in Fremont. Um, basically, we are called Green Lake Brewing Company, DBA Fremont Brewing Company, because we started before we even had a place. Um, somehow, Susie Burke, who people say owns Fremont, uh, heard about us, and uh, we found the place between Albion and Woodland, you know, Park Avenue North. And uh, we never thought we could really afford to be actually in the heart of the city, but um, it was a good deal. It was the former Ride the Ducks Depot when we got there. Uh, It's 8,000 square feet of a, you know, a big shell of a building. There were still those little quacker things that you do on the buses hanging (laughs) from the rafters. Oh, yeah. Um, But there was a lot of work. And so we got all of our friends and some of our early investors to just, you know, dig trenches and sling hammers and stuff and got going and started uh, making beer in the summer of 2009. So, uh, and then shortly thereafter opened a tasting room right there on that side of the brewery. Uh, and oh, we had our first two fermenters were used, I think they were used 60 barrel uh, from Georgetown. We just had two of them. So oh. it was all used equipment. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but we quickly grew out of that. You started with two 60-barrel fermenters. Right. That is... And a 15-barrel brew house. So you're quad-batching every time into just the, into the just those two fermenters? Yeah, or? well, but we quickly started... Yeah. As soon as we could get some money, we started yeah. getting more equipment. I remember when we would get a, uh, a new account, it was kind of stressful because... Um, and this is when we were just doing draft, a new account meant five new kegs. Basically, practically speaking, you have to have five to serve a new count, account. And those costs over $150 each. And so sometimes we didn't even know if we could afford to get a new account. It was very, um, uh, we were operating on slim 
margins to say the best in the beginning. Yeah. It's funny that you would say like that you like it's it's no, I guess it's not funny. It's special for you that you get to say like and we quickly grew out of that like that's the thing that you always hear from the store like when you're talking to the big breweries you're a big brewery that you when i'm talking to a brewery of your scale it's always like yeah we're, we're always looking for ways to get new equipment in here and um and the, yeah the then the, starting off with the 60 like with 60 barrels and hoping to sell that much in any amount of time is so funny like oh, there the, were weeks when we didn't brew a batch yeah. I mean, you know, and we're okay. still fixing up the place. I mean, it, we were not brewing every day by yeah. far back then. But okay. yeah, and it was, but we, it was actual physical space constraints that led us to this facility mm. because we could not fit any more fermenters in our old space and still drive the forklift around and operate the canning line, etc. cetera. Yeah. Um, before we talk about this new space, which I really want to talk about, um, you managed to see you've you've basically lived through this big change in the, the brewery scene. Uh, across the street from your old tap house is your old tap room is uh, is the Fremont Dock, a little bar there, which I've noticed when I go to drink there that it's like I actually live right a block a block away from the other, from your tasting room, and I so I go to the dock a lot. And it, the thing is, every beer on tap there is a Budweiser owned. Okay, we're going to go right to Budweiser, huh? And uh, I mean, I got it. Well, we're just going to hop into that just for a minute because uh, you're talking about getting new tap panels and stuff. And uh, you, but you're the only, brewery, Fremont Brewery is the only brewery that's not Budweiser owned that's on their tap list. Mm. And we were talking, oh, you know, those old, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, I, I always think that's funny that like the only brewery that can sort of break into that you know, whoever's distributing that beer, the only brewery that can do that is when it's across the street from this from this brewery or from this from this bar. Um, anyway, I thought that's kind of I thought that was kind of strange. I think what well, they're you know, in the neighborhood, so it's yeah. not that strange because yeah. when we started, um, we didn't have a distributor, so we were self-distributing, and so we went with you know the PI and and Latona and Park and so we were delivering our and so we developed relationships and so I don't I can't speak for Fremont Dock perhaps they have us on because they know that the free the neighborhood loves us and they kind of better have us on or else they're going to come to our place or maybe it's our relationship with them um, I don't know if we self-distribute to them but the the point is that I think that the beer community and the bar community really does try to um, give people what they want and uh, respond to the needs of the neighborhood that's only smart business practice so I'm not surprised that we're on there and we're the only one um, but uh, it's nice to hear yeah um, okay, so we were talking about you expanding and opening this Ballard facility. So here we are in Ballard. Uh, how, how old is this place? We moved here in um, 2015, spent a year redoing the whole thing. You know, the drains, the lights, everything. Um, and uh, started making beer in the summer of 2016. I guess time really flies. And I this is an 80-barrel brew house. Okay. And uh, the, our largest fermenters are 240 okay. barrels, so three turns a day. And it's our core beers here, not the foo-foo specialty things the that are still brewed thing. at Fremont. Of course, you guys have back at the other back in Fremont. You've got the what's the Black Heron Club or yep, whatever the Black the Heron Project and you know, and other small batches, experimental or otherwise. Yes. Yeah. So, what are your big production beers you do here? I'm, we're looking at the Lush. Uh, all our year-round beers, all of our seasonals, and um, we also blend all of our barrel-aged stuff here. Okay. 
So what does that mean? So you blend you like you blend it all here, and then but the barrels are sitting. Well, no, no you guys have a huge bunch. You have a ton thing. of barrels back yeah. there. I've ridden by uh -huh. that window before, and I can see into it. So I know you do. I'd love to take a peek at that if we yeah. get the chance. Um, let's let's talk a little bit more about the history. So what are some more of the thing? What are, what are some other fun details you might not have told me? I'm, I'll you think while I think of a specific question to ask. Well, let's see. Um, so we went from 8,000 to, this building is 80,000, so that's a tenfold increase. Uh, we are now on, um, so let me see, what are, what are fun details? <laughs> Gosh, it's all been so fun, it's hard to remember. I guess what I wanted to say, just kind of closing this sort of beginning thing, I still feel like we're just this baby in the world. I remember when Matt said he wanted to do this, and I said, aren't there already enough microbreweries, as we called them back then? you know, because in 2007, 2008, I can't remember who they were, but, um, and he said, well, there are 23 in Portland. I think that there is some market room here. And so, and sure enough, it exploded. And so we were just on the cusp and, you know, I don't know if we helped drive some of the growth here. I know that Matt's um, decision to uh, license as a tasting room was a really smart move. So we didn't have to lose money on food. And that is a model that's been replicated. So yes, we've seen an amazing efflorescence of, of breweries all over the place and craft is ascending and it's really great to see that. So while you might think of us as old and big, I think of us as uh, still just kind of, you know, starting out and, and we've hit our stride, but there's still more to come. Yeah. One of the stats that somebody quoted me one time and I've been repeating ever since without ever really looking it up, but it feels right, is that if your brewery is four years old today, it's older than half of all the breweries oh, interesting. That, that are that exist uh, that are in well in Washington. I think is what he said, uh -huh. but I bet you that trend sort of expands to most of the United States, uh, which is really like yeah, there wow. you go. Yeah, you're in the top half oldest breweries. Gosh, and, and I, I'm old. I'm also 52, so I gotta I gotta get used to it. Yeah, your story about starting right when the recession hit at the you know mm. 2008 uh, is shared by another brewery, Chuck Nuts. They, I was talking to them the other day, and they had the same exact tale. They had kind of, they had already been in a brewery game, and mm -hmm. they went to go start yeah, their Kemper, new one. So. Yeah, mm -hmm. and um, which you mentioned, um, uh, what, what was her name? Uh, Burke, who owns all the Susie. Susie Burke, who owns all the Fremont. I'm guessing that's like the descendant of the real, the Burke no. Railroad, or no, no. unrelated, unrelated, <laughs> unrelated, but. Still is formidable. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, okay, so when you... But back to that whole starting, if you want to know. Oh, I yeah. mean, um, I've never talked to, you know, the, the checking up folks about how that was for them, but it turned out to be kind of a blessing because even though some people got scared, when nobody is buying new homes and your 401k is tanking, some people just want a solid place to park their money. And so, uh, you know, being able to invest five, ten thousand dollars $10,000 into our brewery was seen as kind of safe. And uh, it's also way more fun than, you know, just buying some whatever rich people buy. But anyway, uh, so we, it, we got over that a little bit and um, moved on. But as I said, the financing part was really hard because we wanted to start canning way earlier than, than we did. And so because we couldn't get the canning line, we did have a mobile bottler that came. Um, we started focusing on growlers and then, and Whole Foods was the, uh, the first store to pick up our growlers. And that kind of touched off a whole growler sales and grocery store thing. So, um, 
you know, that was kind of a hassle because the dirty growlers would come back to us. But whatever, it worked to get us out of our immediate place and onto grocery shelves. I, um, I, there was a moment where in my house, I think I owned six of y'all's growlers, mm-hmm. of Fremont growlers, because I would walk down to the brewery to fill my growler, go, ah, damn it. I just walked, I only walked two blocks sl- down a slight hill to get there, but I'm like, mm, not going back. So I'm like, oh, give me another growler. I'll just. <laughs> just like my grocery bags, my dispos- <laughs> non-disposable bags and yeah, yep. sitting next to the door. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Didn't you guys have for a while the tagline on your beers that said we were the first beers canned in Seattle? Or my foot and mouth huh. thing right now. There I might have been somebody else who did about that. that. Uh, okay, hmm. I might be foot and mouthing a little bit. That hmm. might be like Hales or something that did uh, did the same. Like first beers canned. Maybe so. I don't remember. We always wanted to, and and we wanted to for many reasons. Matt was interested in the fact that it's, uh, you know, light doesn't get in and there's less oxygen to spoil the beer. I was really interested in the fact that there's more. Um, recyclable material in a can than in a bottle of beer. It's like 80 versus 5 to 7% recycled material. I didn't know that. And, yeah. And so uh, from a sustainability standpoint, the can is far superior and, you know, let, let alone that it weighs less. And so upstream and downstream transportation emissions, etc. So uh, we really wanted to can and it just took a lot longer than me. Yeah. 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 I am. Um, so canning is something that's really been blowing up the last couple of years. And it's so funny that it's clearly the, it does seem like it's clearly the superior medium, you know, the, the superior package. And it's so funny that it just has taken so long to do. And now that you're mentioning the recycling component, mm-hmm. the fact like I recycle. And cost per unit is yeah. less. Yeah, of course. I feel like when I, I feel like I feel, I fill my recycle bins up with bottles just so fast. And I feel like I'm doing such good work. Look at me, I'm recycling all my bottles. But only five percent of that gets reused. Mm. I really should be drinking more cans. I, that's uh, it's more mm-hmm. of an environmental. You know, I, I'm doing the the world a solid by drinking all this beer out of cans. Well, yeah, and they're easier to uh, sneak into venues, and also they're lighter to put into a backpack. <laughs> <laughs> I brought my fair share. You guys actually did. I remember the a marketing push a while back for like your Fremont. Uh, out in out in the wild uh, on top of a mountain. I can see a picture mm-hmm. right, right behind you actually yep, of one of your three month campaign. Your, yeah. Yep, that's right. Uh, I remember that for a little while, and that was uh, that's it's so funny reminiscing about that, like like it was forever ago. But really, then the state, you know, the way that the industry is moving, it just really everything that's happened was just a couple of years ago. I know. I um I'm a certified cicerone. Yes. And I started drinking beer maybe. Six or seven years ago, started seriously drinking beer five years ago, became a Cicerone three years ago, maybe. And I've just been, but I've, in my mind, I've been doing this forever, right? Like, right. This is like, so it's just, anyway, it's, um, uh, well, it's, can we talk about the Cicerone thing? Um, yeah. I really admire that and I want to go through that program because I don't feel like I have a very sophisticated palate because I'm more of a bourbon and wine person. Mm. Um, but we do uh, put our employees through that if they want to, you know, if they want that training. Yeah. So what I want to know, speaking of cans, is can a sophisticated palate tell the difference between um canned and bottled beer. I mean, for so long, the, the, the negative reaction about cans was that it's, you know, you're not going to put, um, you know, haute couture into a, a gunny sack, for example. You yeah. Know? So can you tell the difference? If you, I mean, does it matter? If you gave And I'm me, talking about drinking out of the can, not drinking out of the glass. And that's the second question, but. Mm, 
So can you if people you, that if, know things say? If you drink, like, so here is the real answer to that. Blind, if you if you had poured a canned beer and a bottled beer into a glass, I don't think there is any chance in hell I'd be able to tell the difference. I don't mm-hmm. think anybody could. I think anybody who says they are uh, is probably lying. Um, I think I think you should subject them to a blind test and see if they can do it. Um, however, I personally prefer drinking out of a can than drinking out of a hmm. bottle. Um, drinking out of a bottle is like you don't get any, you don't get like between drinking out of both the can and a bottle, you get basically none of the extra sensory, like the the bonus right. sensory experiences. Yeah, the of, bouquet. Yeah, you don't get to smell it, you don't get to look at it, you don't get to, you know, you barely get to feel it in your hand. In both cases, your hand's getting cold. The, your hand will warm up a beer can faster than a um, than a beer bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, but in either case, given a choice between a beer in a bottle and a beer in a can. I would prefer to drink from a can because I just like the way that feels. I guess it's more nostalgic. I drink lots of, for all the craft beer I drink, I also drink lots of trash beer. And, um, but if I'm drinking, a, a, if I'm, maybe if I'm drinking Lush, I'll pour it into, or I'll drink it out of the can. If I'm drinking anything, probably, well, actually, I'm much more comfortable drinking canned beer out of the can than I'm drinking bottled beer out of a bottle. If it's okay. in a bottle, I'll definitely pour it into a cup almost every time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'll drink canned beer out of a can. No problem. Huh. So if you put something really, really fancy in the can, I might find a bo- I might find a glass for it. But I'm more likely to just be happier with this and cut the edge. Me too. Well, that's because I hate doing dishes. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but drinking out of a bottle, you know. And I like it, the feel of the lip yeah, on the can. It just feels good. And that's good. why we make our pint glasses with kind of in a can shape. I have an aggressively branded home brewery uh, called Intrigue Brewery, and I make I've canned can shaped uh, mm-hmm. glasses just like that for my horrible ginger beers and ciders and beers that I stopped making because I, you know, leave that to the professionals. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, to, there's no great answers to your question. I don't think okay. anyone, I don't well, think anyone, I'm, I'm now, yeah. I've now got the word of the experts. So it would be your personal preference whether well. you like the bottle or the can. Um, let's see. Um, well, there's more room on the can to put all this um, funny story and everything too. Oh, yeah, see? That's a lot of fun. <laughs> I, yeah, that's what it's all about. Um, plus, look, you guys have this extra room up here for your packet in, pack it out, and your Because Beer Matters, all this up here in a bit, you know? That's mm-hmm. great. Yeah. No, I'm a, I'm a, I wouldn't say I'm a can purist, but definitely a can pre- preferentialist. Mm-hmm. I rolled finger quote. Can identified? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, okay, so what... So you now live in Ballard. Most of your beer is brewed in Ballard, but you're still called Fremont Brewery. Have you dealt with that cognitive dissonance at all? No. Uh, We will never be Ballard Brewery. And the the cognitive dissonance is that we never thought about what it will be like to um, distribute in California. Because our bigger problem is that when oh, yeah. the people think when they see Fremont and they don't know anything about us, uh, they're thinking Fremont, California. So uh, we're just going to have to stay Fremont and that's just going to be what it is. I don't know what marketing people, what advice they give, but um, one might when starting a business think about not being so associated with one very small place that your customer base might not know anything about. Mm-hmm. I don't really know if that's a if that's an issue, but we'll never be Ballard Brewing. But um, yeah, like I said, we weren't really thinking too far down the line when we named ourselves Fremont. One one tidbit I guess I would share about that is for breweries opening today in a market that is 
if not crowded already, it will soon to be it'll soon be very overcrowded. Um, calling yourself Fremont or calling yourself Ballard or calling yourself Greenwood Brewery is a great move because that means that is the that's the well in my opinion I'm not a marketing guy I got a, I got I got a, a business minor but like okay don't take my opinion for it um, no my word's not fact but based on what I've talked to, talked to and who I've talked to and what I've done here I think that if you were to name yourself after the neighborhood you're in. That makes you the place to go for the people in your one mile well, and radius. And that's why we yeah. named ourselves that because our we wanted to be the living room of Fremont. Um, we named our flagship Universal Pale out of center of the universe, and so we were very much, you know, hyper local. Yeah. So, um, and I don't know. Then I, I hope we are always thought of as such, even though we're distributed far and wide. So. I think the, the, the more succinct way to say that is only two breweries I know of have, have ever had to deal with that problem, and that's you and Georgetown. Right. So, and I don't think any more breweries will ever have to deal with that. <laughs> I think everyone what gets What not to do. Yeah. They'll be staying small forever. I think that's the way that'll be. Yeah, you um, never know. You never know. That's true. But it's like being, a, it's like becoming a celebrity, right? You got to hit it big um, and you got to get lucky. It's not, I don't think that it's a matter, it's no longer a matter of hard work, in my opinion. And maybe you can disagree uh, with that. I disagree with that. I mean, of course you dis- of course you have to work really hard to do what you've done, but um, but you can't outwork all the other breweries that are also hardworking it right now, I think. One thing that we do emphasize, and this is not a sexy topic, it's quality control. And we really put a lot of resources um, into all the sciencey things down in, you know, in the lab to make sure that we're consistent. And so I think that that is one of the keys to our success is that we Basically, um, we test everything, and w- people know that when they get a keg or when they get a you know a delivery for the for the shelves, it's going to be the same. And I think that uh, that well, that is a big focus of the BA, really trying to get craft. Now that we're on the now that we're on the map, don't fuck it up, people. You know, <laughs> do it right. You're only as good as your last beer. So um, you know, we invested a lot in that, and I think that that had a big part of our success. I don't think that it was all just luck. Plus, you know, we have these people that make these great recipes that, you know, and always innovating, etc. Insert typical boilerplate language of any brewer who's trying to explain their success. But um, I do want to call out the lab stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned the lab stuff and the focus on the quality. And I'd love to talk about more about what specifically you guys do if, if you're the person mm-hmm. I talked about that. No. Okay. Um, but it's funny that you mentioned that because one of the brewers I talked to recently on a previous episode said that the, the big brewers will tell you it's all about focusing on quality. And then these little brewers will say like, eh, whatever, it's all about focusing. Like, not that quality is not important, but they'll say it, you don't get to focus on quality because you are brewing a new batch every time because you're trying to keep your people and drinking creative things in your tap room. Right. If you're just doing one-offs all the time, then yeah. you can't focus on quality all the time. And I can yeah. totally see that. You have to have both. Uh, you have to have innovation and, and crazy experimentation and have some bad batches and whatever um, to, to remain relevant and exciting and also so that our folks still love their jobs. Mm-hmm. And But once people start liking one of your beers, then you have to really focus on consistency and mm-hmm. quality. And so I don't think that it's a one or the other. I think that it's a both. One of the things I noticed about your brewery, even five years ago when I first started drinking it, was that... Oh, can I, can I mention? Hold that thought. Also, when you're packaging, 
there are even more factors. So if you're just serving draft out of your, you know, tasting room, then you don't have to worry about your cans or bottles blowing up or something like that. Or, you know, or how well do they age sitting on some warehouse, whatever. So, so it kind of depends on the kind of brewery that you are, you know, when it comes to how much you invest in the quality stuff. Go on. That's fair. Yeah, that's, that's probably the most complete answer, I think, for that question. Uh, but like what, I, what I was saying was you, what I noticed first about that brewery, about your brewery when I was first drinking there five years ago was that you did have, even back then in your old tasting room, you had five or six beers that were reliably there. Like there were mm-hmm. a couple that rotated in through seasonals and whatever, but out of your total menu, there were several you could count on to be there all mm-hmm. the time, and it would almost always be the same. And there were a couple of different, um, a couple of IPAs, a couple of pails, and you would pretty firmly establish yourself as this like super hoppy beer uh, IPA champions, um, which pro- maybe helped in that, in that time because everyone was drinking. I mean, everyone is always drinking IPAs. Uh, but anyway, I guess where I was going with this was you now have the like the Black Heron project which we touched on for just a minute, but you were talking about how you need to keep on brewing those weird things and those creative things and whatever in order to keep your employees happy, your brewers happy, and your drinkers who want creative stuff. Let's talk a little bit about that. So what was so that was obviously spawned out of just an absolute need to keep on brewing weird stuff even after you'd opened a huge I wouldn't say brewery. need, I would say passion. Yeah. Okay. So, but, but whose passion? Our, our brewers. Okay. Yeah, I mean, because it's it's still supposed to be fun. Mm-hmm. People come to this industry uh, really wanting to make great beer and experiment. And I still think that, that we are in that phase as an industry. So um, we're constantly... So, for example, if you're asking what ends up on our... Now we have, I don't know how, 36 taps com, you know, total over there or whatever. But um, some of it is stuff that we're testing to see if people like in the tasting room and it might become a seasonal, you know, in a year or two. Some of it was uh, just a whim that we wanted to try. So what was your question again? I mean, I guess I, <laughs> the question was a secret jumping off point to get you going wherever you're going. Um, <laughs> so I don't even remember what it was. I think we were just talking about the Heron, the, Heron, uh, the, mm-hmm. the Heron Project, Black Heron Project. Oh, but you know what? That's got me thinking a new question. Okay, but that might be for somebody else because I'm not sure if I can go that deep. But go on. Okay. I was going to ask about the Heron Hunters Club. Mm-hmm. Uh, which That's is, top secret. Well, I mean, a little bit, right? Okay, well. No, go on. I was just going to say that I was in the Heron Hunters Club for one... Hot minute. When there, I was in there for a year, I think, I bought in on it. So I, thought, I found y'all hiding underneath the troll, giving yeah. out raffle tickets for people who wanted to join. And I brought a bunch of my friends with me, and they all grabbed raffle tickets, and we sat at home waiting for the numbers to pop up. And, and then I was that, and that was pretty cool. Uh, wh- that, But that's like, that's a secret marketing thing. Like you gotta, We what, don't know. It was just... People think that we have this grand vision, and I'm, I don't want... Um, whatever. A lot of the stuff that we do is for fun. Uh, You know, folks figured out the, and, but, you know, how to accommodate the numbers of people. And so, and, and so uh, our events folks figured out the, uh, the whole troll thing and the, and the mystique, but it wasn't driven by a, Hey, this is going to be cool for marketing. It was more like, you know, we've got this great stuff. People are writing about these old beers and why not have a really cool event? It's no more mysterious than that. That's fair. And also, we wanted to work with um, really great chefs. That's true. Yeah, that's right. 
Um, talk about that a little bit. So what was like? What, what was it like bringing in the chefs to do these kind of events? Well, it was always it was amazing to me that Ethan Stoll said yes our first time, and and then um, and then it was Yang, and la- then last year it was uh, I don't uh, James Beard Solari June Baby person. Anyway, so it's just great to be able to have a collaboration with chefs, and that's one thing that I have to say about beer is that we're now kind of. We've grown up enough that people are starting to think about food pairing. And so, you know, we're nowhere near where wine and food is, and I don't know if we'll ever be there, but it's, it's great. It's a sign of our maturity that we are now thought of as something that you consume next to food, and it should be thoughtful. So that was fun for us, too, just to have great food with our super rare old bottles. Another one of the things they do with the... Uh uh, for the Cicerone certification is that you learn about food and beer pairings and it turns out that wine and food pairings is basically impossible compared to, to beer and food pairings. Like everyone thinks of wine and cheese going together but the reason wine and cheese go together is because cheese has a really bold flavor that wine just can't wash out, right? You can't like, you can't overpower the flavor of cheese with wine so you eat cheese. It's something to keep drinking as you're moving through your meal. Yeah, and uh-huh. so, but in, but in terms of beer, like beer is carbonated, so it scrubs your palate, and you can keep on like you can if you eat the right food and then drink the right sip of beer, you can sort of re-experience that first bite over and over again, which is always the best bite. I never thought of that. And uh, it's yeah. the new sherbet before the courses at fancy restaurants. Oh, absolutely, I huh. think that uh, I think that you know you're wow. mentioning the maturity of it. I think it, it, we're not far away from getting to the point where where you're going to need to see more food and beer pairings on menus and stuff like that everywhere you go, like as if there are wine pairings, because wine pairings are just like, you know, there's these generic rules, oh, whites are great with delicate flavors and reds are good with strong flavors, but like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, who cares about that rule? Why is, why is such a generic rule such a thing when everyone knows that all these red wines taste so different, all these white wines taste so different? Where am I really, what, what's going on Is here? it possible that there is no bad combination of alcohol and food? Yes, I think I got to agree with you on that one. Um, Sorry, I'm trying to think back. Do we have any loose loose ends on the conversations we were having before? Yes, now I get on my my soapbox. Yes. So um, our tagline is because beer matters, and uh, I take that to mean that that beer or this business matters to me because it is a uh, a vehicle, a platform, a soapbox to do positive things. And so uh, we, like I said before, we're very focused on sustainability. I'm not saying this for marketing reasons or anything, but we really do try to do the right thing and we have to plan our investments in equipment so that we can really afford the the things we want to do. We cannot afford a CO2 recapture system. So here we are making beer, creating CO2, it's going into the atmosphere, ruining the climate, and then we buy gas and shoot it into our beer. So Eventually, that's an investment that we'd like to make. And I would love it if, if technology makers and green energy makers would make solutions that are scalable to our size and also recognize craft brewers as a market segment that they should be marketing to. We have problems getting rid of our spent grain. One, I always say there is no such thing as garbage, just resources out of place. And every brewer has a relationship with a farmer who takes the spent grain and gives it to their animals. But that's not very efficient why aren't we making renewable energy 
why aren't we making methane to convert to electricity? So we have a pilot project in our parking lot, which is an anaerobic digester that does just that. It's not to scale. It only takes 120 pounds of our stuff and we make 10,000 pounds a day. But my point is that, you know, we're a new industry and we're one of the fastest growing manufacturing sectors. And when you talk about climate and getting uh, the private sector to, you know, to step up to the challenge, we want to. I think that the beer community is for the most part, good-hearted people that are driven by passions and uh, conviction. Otherwise, they'd be doing something that's a lot more lucrative. And they want to do the right thing. So um, that is a big push at Fremont Brewing. And we're in the top 25% for water, energy, and electricity conservation, according to the BA's benchmarking, sustainability benchmarking things. And there are a lot of things that we try to do. But why I'm saying this is because we have a voice. And... um, as a as a, as an industry, we have a platform, and we're beloved. We're now considered placemakers. Our tasting rooms are adding vitality to neighborhoods. They're anchor tenants in new developments, and and so we're big kids now. And I believe that we can change the world. Also, you know, we I should have stopped there. Yeah. Anyway, pause. Um, we're manufacturers, but we're also agriculture. And so we bridge the east-west Washington divide. And, and uh, Fremont Brewing is always trying to incentivize the um, you know, sustainably produced ingredients, local malts, supporting independent maltsters, organic hops, yada, yada, yada. So all of this is important. I mean, I think that that is, um, and I don't think that that would be rare when you talk to folks that are really you know, um, whose soul is in this industry that they're trying to do the right thing. And we are. Corporate beer does have CO2 recapture because they can afford it. When I started researching the Sierra Nevada was the only craft brewery that in 2008 that um, had this, but they could afford it, you know, and it's expensive to get the CO2 all compressed and everything and pure and everything to, to be able to use. But that's just one example of among many of technologies that we could be taking advantage of. We have a heat recapture that captures the heat from our uh, brewing kettles and um, powers the boiler. That was a little piece of equipment that was really expensive. So we make investments when we can, but it should be easier to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm trying to do. There are, like brewing in general is a really... um it's an energy intensive process and it's a, it's a, it produces a lot of waste. And I think that's a, ma- mm-hmm. that's, a, that's, that's basically all industry. There is no such thing as waste. Just right. resource. I don't know. No, you're right. Well, yeah, but you've got. Wastewater, yeah. spent grain. Yeah. And, um, and it's possible to imagine resources out of place, but the reality of it is no matter how hard you guys try, it, there are a thousand other breweries who aren't trying as hard, but it is really, it, I, I think I agree with your, sustainability I mean, of course i agree with your sustainability goals i mean like i don't own a car around my bike i'm a cycling cicerone not the driving my bike everywhere <laughs> or driving my car everywhere cicerone so like you know i get it i totally know where you're going um and uh do you guys um i was talking to a brewery uh aslan up in bellingham and they're mm-hmm. a certified b corp and they're pretty proud of that because that's supposed to be like an environment first, people, like employees first before We have explored that and um, it is, it's on our radar and uh, some of our, um, I haven't looked at all of the uh, requirements, but um, some of our more specific goals are uh, organic beers, certified organic. And so we're starting out with, with looking at those. Um, however, I would say that 
we've been told, you guys match all of the B core qualifications anyway, why don't you just do it? And I don't really have a great answer for that, but um, we do put a lot of resources and energy into uh, the employee uh, benefits packages that, that is a big part of the B Corps. So way before we had to, by law, we were providing health care. Um, like when we got seven employees, we, we started providing subsidized health care. We now give paid family leave for people who get a new family member, however they get that. Um, 401k with a 3% match, etc. Subsidized transit cards. So uh, I guess I should just look more closely at what are those requirements and um, what are the what are the some of the not the what are the barriers to being a B Corps right now and then how to focus on that. But yeah. most of my regulatory energy has been trying to get organic certification for our beers. Right. Our um, Kawicha Canyon is salmon safe. It's the first salmon safe beer in Washington. But go on. What does that mean? Uh, well, um, the Stewardship Partners manages the Salmon Safe program, and because Kewicha Canyon's hops are uh, grown organically right on the mouth of the Kewicha Canyon, um, which is that kind of flows into uh, Yakima from the west off of Mount Rainier, uh, it was given Salmon Safe status because none of the runoff is bad for that creek, and so it's good for salmon. And you can also get. Uh, Facilities, you know, designated salmon safe, you know, if they're near bodies of water, etc. That is interesting because that that's another one of those things that you never think about. You know, the way that you consume what you're consuming will impact other stuff. Mm -hmm. It's the first thing I've ever heard of being salmon safe, and um, and great glad yeah. that it's y'all. <laughs> and that's why I mean that's you know we. The power is where the money is. And so you should be buying and growing the market for sustainably produced whatever. And I know that that term is overused and you can get into the weeds, but uh, we do try to uh, you know, grow the market for organic hops. And we did a bunch of stuff. I can tell you about that later. And uh, we're um, presenting partners and founding partners of the Cascadia Grains Conference, which brings together uh, farmers in the Skagit, independent maltsters, uh, Brewers, distillers, policymakers. This is in January every year to try to grow the market for small farm, locally grown grain. So that um, you know there are many different benefits: economic development, environmental, and also flavor. Because the people say malt is the new hops. Uh, you know, I haven't heard that it, one yet, but uh, I bet if it's coming, well, it's, coming. it's it's a big part of what's in your glass. Yeah. And if everybody's getting it, you know, from one source and putting it into the, then the uh, the avenues for innovation are more narrow. But if you can access uh, very um, unique specialty heirloom varieties, which the University of Washington, not the Uni Washington State University, has a breeding program, then now you've got a whole new area, and so. I said it first, be on the lookout for um, from farm to glass and, you know, all this movement now starting in beer, which is where, you know, wine was many years ago. We're, we're now talking about terroir. Oh, absolutely. In beer. So, yeah. And so this is all about variety, innovation, and um, supporting, you know, small farmers who aren't all doing the same thing. Anti-corporate. I guess that's a big part of our ethic also, anyway. 
Okay. Anti-corporate? What do you mean? Well, I mean, I guess I'm just getting back to the whole... Anti-big business? Corporate beer. No, like... corporate beer versus craft beer. I mean, I right. think that, um, that because... Budweiser, you know, etc. They have such. Uh, there's not a level playing field when it comes to what the the contracts that they can get for hops and grains. They've already got an advantage, um, and let alone the fact that they're buying up distributorships and it's very easy for them to keep craft off the off the shelves and and uh, you know bar menus or they just buy a craft brewery because they have to. If you can't beat them, buy them. But one thing that we still have is the ability to innovate on the small scale by um, supporting small farmers and uh, independent maltsters. And so we'll always have an edge, I think. Um, you mentioned the farm to table and the terroir, and I thought I wanted to share with you is that like, yeah, beer has a much better capacity for terroir than wine ever did because like, Wine is trying to grow these grapes, and that's kind of the only consideration is how these growing. And there's a lot of knowledge. There's a large body of knowledge about that. But we have hops, which are often compared immediately to grapes in their, in their ability to vary year to year and based on the climate mm -hmm. they're growing in. Um, but we also have water sources. So wine doesn't have to bother with an out external water source. Um, they we do so we get to deal with the way that we treat our water and the way that we like the water of different cities or different counties is different. Okay, and then uh, now you've got me going down this whole tangent because what's in your glass is ninety seven percent water, and no water, no beer. That's always my tagline. Yeah, and uh, so we do a lot of work on um, water quality and water conservation. We happen to be very lucky to be uh, within the Cedar River watersheds. You know, water district. We have some of the cleanest water of any place in the country. You do not have to filter this water. So um, I would love to know what Cicerone type people think about uh, the, the import of different tastes of water because I've never even explored that. We happen to have one of the most pristine sources of water and we have to protect it and um, conserve it and, we're, and, and never not be thankful for that resource. Well, let me tell you, um, before I tell you about my opinion on that, do you want to grab another beer? Next week, catch part two of this series where we talk with Matt, the head of brewing operations. This week's guest was Sarah Nelson, co-founder of Fremont Brewery. If you want their beer, you can go to their beer garden in Fremont or really just any store anywhere. This week's episode was recorded and produced by me, the cycling certified Cicerone music by Lee Roosevelt. Thanks for listening to Washington Beer Talk. If you like what you heard, you can go to cyclingcicerone.com for the full blog posts and other episodes. Don't forget to follow the Cycling Cicerone on Facebook and Instagram for more beer-related antics. You can also find more episodes of the podcast on Stitcher, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts. I would really appreciate it if you would leave a like or a comment. It really helps me out. If you want to leave a review of the podcast, the best place to do that is Apple Podcasts. 